this to their program. Let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Genesis. Chapter 30 and verse 14. The title of our message this morning is Jacob's Dozen, Part 3. Will there be a Part 4? I'm hoping not, but it's God's call, right? This is a section of Scripture that most people just say, what is going on here? Let me find the book of Romans where I'm comfortable. Um, (laughs) Essentially what is happening here is the big picture is God is raising up a nation. And one of the key verses in the book of Genesis is chapter 50, verse 20 where Joseph says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God is so sovereign that he's taking some of the strange decisions of some of the people in his nation to form an enterprise. He is laying the foundation of this new nation, the nation of Israel. And here is where we're given an explanation of the origin of the 12 tribes. The rest of Scripture will not explain to you where the 12 tribes came from. You can only learn about it in this chapter and in the chapter that precedes it, the last few verses. Yet I'm here to tell you that the 12 tribes is a big deal. The origin of them is that circle there up north, Haran, that's where Jacob is, where he married somebody, thinking the person he married was somebody else. (laughs) So that's wife number one. And then, okay, now he gets the woman that his heart uh, affections were towards, that's wife number two. And into those two marriages come two handmaidens. One is named Billa, one is named Zilpah. So we've got Jacob, then we've got Rachel, Leah, Billa, Zilpah. And this is how God is using some of the strange choices of his creatures to form a nation. I think this is very instructive to us because a lot of times we think, There are so many bad choices that we've made. God can't possibly be in control. And yet the book of Genesis tells us that God is in control. It doesn't uh, excuse bad choices, but God never relinquishes his sovereignty over the universe because of bad choices. God's will is going to happen. God doesn't sit up there in heaven with sweaty palms saying, oh no, what am I going to do now? How am I going to pull this off? (laughs) He is sovereignly laying through strange activity the foundation of his new nation, the nation of Israel, which by the way is a big deal because without Israel you don't have Jesus. You don't have a Savior. You also don't have a scripture. And you also don't have a coming kingdom. 
So what is happening here, it's easy to get caught up in some of the intricate details. You sometimes feel like you're watching, uh, you know, the old soap opera Dallas. Not that I'm recommending that from this pulpit, but you feel like you're watching something like that. And yet what is actually happening behind the scenes is God is at work building a nation. Without the book of Genesis, we would have no knowledge of the beginnings And one of the great beginnings that God is doing here is the last bullet point on the right, Israel. Where did Israel come from? Only here do we have an explanation. Why is it that these 12 tribes are so significant? Well, Revelation 7 says they're going to evangelize the whole world one day. Matthew 19 verse 28 says that they will have a prominent role in the thousand year reign of Christ. In fact, Jesus said to the disciples, you who have followed me at the regeneration of all things will sit on 12 thrones governing the 12 tribes of Israel. And in fact, suspended over planet earth right now is the new Jerusalem. Uh, It's not going to come to this earth. It's going to come to a new earth. But once that city comes to this earth, as you walk in and out of that city, every time you look at a gate and there's going to be three gates on each side of the city, you'll see a name of one of the 12 tribes. You'll find that in Revelation 21, verse 12. And we have to ask at some point a question, where did these 12 tribes come from? The answer is the sovereignty of God using the imperfect choices of his creation. So we started a series within a series, (laughs) and it's getting pretty long. Maybe we're going to have to do a series within a series within a series as things unfold here. But this is basically called Jacob's Dozen, three parts to this series Where did these tribes come from? Well, the first four of them came from Jacob's relationship with Leah, the unwanted wife. I mean, she can't be that unwanted. He's got four children through her. My goodness. Uh, We we have uh, Reuben, which means uh, uh, sight. Simeon, which means um, hearing. You have Levi, which means attached, and you have Judah, which means praise. And then we saw that Rachel sort of got jealous and said, you know, I can't get pregnant, but take my handmaiden Bilhah. So Jacob says, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> so from that relationship comes Dan, verse 6 of Genesis 30, which means judge. And from that relationship comes uh, Naphtali, which means wrestle. And then Leah sees what's happening there, and she says, well, take my handmaid, Zilpah. From that relationship comes um, Gad, verse 11, which means fortune, and Asher, verse 13, which means happy or happiness. And here we go. The plot thickens. And now we have Leah having two more biological children and a daughter. 
And that daughter is very important for reasons I'm going to explain. Leah's two sons and a daughter. And we have something happening here with mandrakes. So notice, if you will, Genesis chapter 30 and verse 14. It says, Now in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben, now that would be the firstborn of Leah, went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said uh, to Leah, please give me some of your mandrakes. So Reuben goes out, firstborn of Leah. He picks these uh, entities in the field called mandrakes, Leah's firstborn son, and gives them to Leah. Now what, what in the world are mandrakes? And when I explain it, some of you are going to be saying, how do I get some of those? Uh, You'll find mandrakes mentioned in the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 13. It says the mandrakes, Song of Solomon, as you know, is a love story. The mandrakes have given forth fragrance, and over our doors are all choices of fruits, both new and old, which I have saved up for you, my beloved. They're basically designed by God to stimulate the sexual desire. The common name for them is an aphrodisiac. And it's much easier reading what Arnold says about him than me having to explain all this. Uh, So that's why I quote these long verses here or sections of commentaries. I don't want to be the birds and the bees speech guy, so I'll let Arnold do it. And it says, Leah again begins to bear children with verses 14 through 16, giving the background concerning the mandrakes. Verse 14a records Reuben's gift. The timing was Reuben went out in the days of the wheat harvest, which would make it around the months of May and June. The result was and found mandrakes in the field. In Hebrew, the word for mandrakes is dudaim, literally meaning love apples. These are berries that have white and reddish blossoms and a yellow fruit similar to small apples. It is mentioned in the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 13, a verse we just read. And was considered an aphrodisiac, and therefore the Hebrew word root is the same as the Hebrew word for lover, based on it, in other words, the mandrakes being a sexual stimulant. You look at the second part of verse 14, and you see here um, Rachel making a request of Leah, who now has these mandrakes. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Why would she want the mandrakes so Jacob would impregnate Rachel? Rachel, of course, had no children of her own body. At this particular time, she, of course, had two children legally through Bilhah, but the child, the, the children were not her own biologically. They were only her own legally, and she wanted children of her own. And Leah is not having it because if you look at verse 15, you see Leah's refusal. But she, that's Leah, said to her, that's Rachel, is it a small matter? For you to take my husband? 
And would you also take my son's mandrakes? Translation, why should I improve your love life with Jacob? Um, I mean, I'm the one that loved Jacob. I'm the one that got him first. Now, of course, that was by way of deception. And there's this resentment in Leah that Rachel, excuse me, Jacob loved Rachel rather than Leah. So why, why should I help you? Why should I improve your, your love life? Why should I, Leah, improve your love life when you are already chosen by my husband Jacob over me? So it's very interesting here that Rachel makes a, um, a resignation. Verse 15, so Rachel said, therefore he may, that's Jacob, may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. Now, folks, this is an example of what we call descriptive literature and not prescriptive literature. I mean, this is not here to tell us how to act within marriage. I'm sorry to disappoint everybody's sin nature. The Bible teaches monogamy, one man for one woman for one life. This is not saying this is how it should be done. This is saying this is what happened. And although the circumstances were less than perfect, God still used this to raise up the 12 tribes, which, as I explained a little earlier, are very significant in the outworking of God's purposes. Rachel wanted biological children badly. So you can take my husband for tonight in exchange for these mandrakes. Jacob will lie with Leah tonight on account of you giving me this aphrodisiac, which I think is going to allow me to become pregnant. Less than perfect circumstances, but God is at work. And that's exactly how to look at your life. All of us come from circumstances that are less than perfect. There's hurt feelings. There's hurt words. There's choices that we bear the consequence of. Sometimes they're not even our choices. They're someone else's choices. And if you're not careful with that, you'll start to think that your life doesn't matter. Your life is insignificant. After all, I come from, people say, a dysfunctional family. Well, let me let you in on a little secret here. Every family is dysfunctional. It's just a matter of degree, how dysfunctional they are. We all come from, quote, dysfunctional backgrounds, close quote. What God intends for evil or what man intends for evil, God can very easily turn around for good. So if you come from less than perfect circumstances, which includes all of us, don't lose heart in that because God is in the business of taking messy situations and turning them around into eternal realities, which is what he's doing here with these 12 tribes. So this union now takes place sexually between... Jacob and Leah, verse 16. When Jacob came in from the field and in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have surely hired. Notice that word hired. Hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. Jacob normally slept with Rachel, whom he loved. 
Genesis 29 verse 18 tells us where Jacob's affections were. It says there, now Jacob loved Rachel. Genesis 29 20 tells us where Jacob's affections were because it talks there about his love for her. That would be Rachel. So Jacob normally slept with Rachel, but not tonight. Leah hired Jacob to sleep with her in return for giving to Rachel the aphrodisiac. The word hired here is very interesting. It's sakar, sakar, which helps us to understand the name of the child born from this union. This would be Leah's fifth son. Notice verse 17, God gave heed to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Well, does this fifth son have a name? We're so glad you asked. Verse 18, then Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my maid to my husband. So she named him Issachar. So verse 17, God heeded unto Leah what? She was after concerning the mandrakes, verse 18, Leah had hired Jacob with the mandrakes leading to the birth of her fifth son. And that's why he gets this name, Issachar, which means to hire. See, I told you this is like a better plot than a soap opera, isn't it? In fact, you know, all these soap operas that are on TV, I don't know if they still are. I read the Bible and I don't, I'm like seeing a better soap opera. So if I'm into soap operas, why waste my time with, you know, the TV? I can just read the scripture and get a lesson on it concerning the sovereignty of God. How God's plan and program is not somehow derailed because of some of these strange choices that his own people are actually making. Then you go down to verse 19 and Leah because of Jacob, gets pregnant again, leading to her sixth son. And notice, if you will, verse 19, Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. Does that sixth son have a name? I'm glad you asked. Verse 20, then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell. You want to underline the word dwell. Will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. So even though her, at the end of chapter 29, her affections, Leah seemed to have been on God. Now she gets back into her husband. Very resentful that she was not the first loved by Jacob. And she says, certainly now I have given my husband six Sons, and now he will want to dwell with me. The word dwell here um, is the word in Hebrew, zavid. It means endowment or dowry. The verb is zaval, to dwell. It represents Leah's hope. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. And that's where this name Zebulun comes from which means dwelling. Just as a side note, you'll never be happy in the Christian life 
as long as the object of your self-worth and your significance comes from somebody else. When we look to other things, whether it's a person, a spouse, a career, a friend, to somehow give your life meaning and validation, your life is going to be filled with ups and it's going to be filled with downs because you cannot control the reaction of the other person. The greatest thing you could ever do in your life is to deposit yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ and say, you know what? My value comes from you, God, and you alone. I know that I'm very significant to you because look at the price you paid for me to redeem me, which we just commemorated this morning at the Lord's table. And not only look at the price that you paid for me to redeem me, look at who who I am in terms of how I'm designed. I'm an image bearer of God. The first chapter of the Bible talks about that. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. That's why people are so valuable to God. God cares about you. God cares about individuals. God cares about people as demonstrated by who they are by way of design. The animals are not designed in God's image. People are. It's not that God doesn't love the animals, but humans are higher than the animals because of their image-bearing status. And look at the price Jesus paid to redeem us back to himself. And so as you bask in that truth, suddenly you start to discover that your value doesn't come from someone else's opinion of you. It comes from God himself. And that leads to so much liberation. Because people's opinion of you will vacillate just like the weather report. One day they'll approve of you, the next day they won't, the next day they'll like you, and we're kind of an emotional roller coaster all of the time getting validation from other people and God says get it from me get off this kind of up and down uh, you know roller coaster ride but anyway this is where Zebulun came from and this is where Issachar came from now there's someone else that's going to be born here through this um, Jacob Leah union and that's a daughter named Dinah and take a look at verse 21 it says afterwards After what? After bearing six children. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of effort there. After bearing six sons, she, that's Leah, bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Now what's very interesting is Jacob is going to have other daughters. But this is the only one that I know of that's called out by name. At least this early in the biblical account. So obviously Dinah is very significant, and I'll explain her significance in just a minute. But it's very clear that Jacob had other daughters, because later on in Genesis 37, verse 35, it says, Then all his sons and his daughters arose to comfort him, Jacob. Genesis 46 and verse 7 says his sons and grandsons and with him his daughters and his granddaughters. Genesis 46 verse 15. These are the sons of Leah whom she bore to Jacob in Haran with his daughter Dinah. 
all his sons and daughters, it mentions, numbered 33 total. So if Jacob has other daughters, why is the name of this particular daughter featured? Why is it is it highlighted? And it has to do with something that's going to happen to Dinah in Genesis 34. It's a terrible thing that happens to her. You wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy, and yet it's in the Bible. It's one of those chapters where you read it and you say, why did I need to know that? As this poor girl becomes a victim of something very atrocious, we'll be reading about it as we progress through Genesis to such a point where the sons of Jacob demand and execute immediate retaliation against the wrongdoers. And you read that chapter and you say, why in the world do I need to know that about Dinah? Well, the answer is the same reason you need to know about something as bizarre as something that's happening in Genesis 38. I think it was J. Vernon McGee that called Genesis 38 the weirdest chapter in the Bible or something along those lines. You take Genesis 34 and you take Genesis 38 and you put them together and you say, why do I need to know those things? And here becomes the answer. What is being described in chapter 34 and chapter 38 is the wickedness in the land of Canaan. We, uh, of course, should not be surprised about wickedness in the land of Canaan. Remember Noah's son, Ham, uncovered his father's wicked uh, nakedness. Something very strange happened there. The apple doesn't far too far too far from the tree. Genesis 9 verse 22 says, Ham, the son that did this to Noah, is the father of Canaan. Genesis 9.25 says, so he said, cursed be Canaan. And very, very sadly in history that has been interpreted racially. It has nothing to do with race. It has to do with behavior of the wicked Canaanites that imitated the detestable practice of their progenitor Ham And because of their wicked practices, the whole land of Canaan was filled with debauchery for centuries. When you read uh, the book of Leviticus, chapter 18 and chapter 20, you'll see why God said to Joshua in the book of Joshua, you need to go into the land of Canaan and need to slaughter all these people. Because of the total wickedness that they were involved in. That's a hard truth, but God gave those people 400 years to repent. They were involved in some of the most barbaric things a person can imagine. In fact, we have geology and archaeology from that time period, and some of the inscriptions are so incredibly grotesque, I don't even feel right putting them up on a screen in a church environment. You want to talk about modern day pornography at the basis level. That, in essence, is what the Canaanites were involved in. They were involved in homosexuality, lesbianism, and that's the lighter things that they were involved in. They were heavily involved in incest. They were heavily involved in child sacrifice. 
In fact, I hate to say it, but it kind of sounds like the front pages of our newspaper as our own nation is falling apart at the seams morally. You want to know what the problem with the United States of America is. It's it's not tax policy. It's not uh, what party gets control of the White House. Those things are important. But God in his word, Proverbs 14, verse 34, says righteousness exalts a nation. You want to see America come back? Everybody's talking about make America great again. I'm always trying to figure out what made us great to begin with. If you're trying to make us great again, we I guess we're concluding we were great at some point. And the answer is not in the perfection of our culture. There's imperfections everywhere. It's in the idea that there was a Judeo-Christian ethic that people recognized. And when others kind of slipped away from that, you could see the slippage because there was a standard. The truth of the matter today is we don't have a standard. The standard has been obliterated. And so when a culture reaches that level, it's ripe for judgment. And that's what happened to the Canaanites. And if you want to see how wicked the Canaanites were, just read what happened to Dinah in Genesis 34. And then as supplementary reading, read Genesis 38. And once you see those two chapters, which we would have no knowledge of unless we had an introduction to Dinah, which is what we're getting here, where did Dinah come from? You would have no knowledge as to why God said, okay, Israel, I'm taking you out of this wicked place. And I'm going to bring you to Egypt and I'm going to incubate you there for four centuries. Until the wickedness of the Canaanites reaches full bloom. Then you're going to come back ultimately under Joshua and you're going to eradicate these people and you're going to establish the nation of Israel. How bad were the Canaanites? Genesis 34 and Genesis 38 is your explanation. That's why those chapters are in the Bible. Because if you don't understand those chapters, you don't understand why God has to get his people out of Canaan. Had God allowed the nation of Israel to continue to exist in Canaan, you know what would have happened? They would have just become like the Canaanite culture. But God has a special calling on this new nation. So not only does he create them, but he is in the business of preserving them. Preserving them from what? From wickedness. I think I mentioned last time that my father used to always tell me, And he still does, by the way. He says, you know, don't let your friends pick you. You pick your friends. Because show me a person's friends. Show me a person's associates. Show me the people that a person runs with. And I'll show you what that person is going to be like 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33, God is very clear. Bad company corrupts good morals. Why did God have to get his people out of Canaan and to be incubated in Egypt in a place called Goshen? Because Israel would have dissolved morally had that not happened. 
And so as an explanation as to how bad the Canaanites were, we have the Dinah episode and Genesis 38, 34 and 38 together. And where did Dinah come from? Right here. That's why Dinah, her name is featured against the backdrop of all of Jacob's other daughters. So Dinah comes from the feminine form of Dan, which also means judge. Verse 21, afterwards, she, that's Leah, bore Dinah, a uh, bore, excuse me, a daughter and named him Dinah. So we're done with the childbearing, not quite. Because there's coming someone whose job it is. And I doubt if he had known his job, he would have been very happy about it. Because this job or this task that he is going to do is going to come under much duress. But his job is to be the agent or the intermediary by which Israel will be signaled out of Canaan and come to Egypt. And that man's name is who? That man's name is Joseph. He was born with an assignment. He was born with a mission. And the mission is something that was not going to be accomplished through the best of circumstances, like all of these other things that we're reading about here. It's going to involve betrayal at the grossest level by his brothers, left for dead. And yet God is allowing that to get Jacob, excuse me, Joseph, into Egypt, whereby in the providence of God, Joseph will be elevated at age 30 to second in command over all of Egypt. From age 17 to age 30 is pure trials. But by the time you hit age 30, Joseph, you're going to be second in command. And you, therefore, in that position are going to be the intermediary or the agent that God is going to use to take his own people, Israel, out of the land of Canaan. God is going to use a famine in Canaan to cause this result. And he's going to use the intermediary work of a man named Joseph. And so we might be asking ourselves, well, who did this guy, where did this guy Joseph come from? So we conclude here with chapter 30, verses 22 through 24, without which you would have no explanation as to who Joseph is or where he came from or where he originated. Look at verse 22. It says, then God remembered Rachel, the one who couldn't have children on her own. Now, this is interesting here because it's talking about God's remembrance. And you shouldn't think that God somehow has a senior moment and forgets something. Oh, yeah. I mean, that does happen as you get older. You go into a room and you have no idea why you went into the room. I know I... Came in here for something. I like to remember that because a lot of people look at pastors as if they have all the answers. Pastors don't even remember where their car keys are half the time. <laughs> all the answers? Are you kidding me? So we kind of transfer that to God. In fact, if you're interested in theology, there's a whole movement today called Open Theism, which basically recreates God in man's image. And basically assigns to God 
a lack of omniscience, forgetfulness. And the open theist likes to use verses like this. Look, it says God remembered. But what does this word remembered mean? You might recall, or you might remember, if your memory is very good, all the way back in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, with the flood. Remember? God, Genesis 8, verse 1, remembered Noah. You know, in the ark with the animals as the floodwaters hit the earth. The flood is suspended now over the floodwaters. The inhabitants of the earth, with the exception of eight, and the animals in the ark are all drowned. And there's the ark floating. And it says in Genesis 8, verse 1, God remembered Noah. Well, did God suddenly forget Noah was there? No, that's not what that word remembered means. What it's talking about is not forgetting It's talking about a movement towards someone in grace. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, back in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, gave us this explanation. The turning point begins with the remembrance of God in verse 1. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. The word remember does not mean remember in the sense that God temporarily forgot about the ark and its inhabitants. Rather, it means remembering in the sense of movement towards the object. For example, in Genesis 19, verse 29, God remembered Abraham with a view to saying to Lot, saving Lot, excuse me. God remembered Abraham with a view towards saving Lot. In Exodus 2.24, God remembered his covenant with the patriarchs with a view towards rescuing Israel. See how this is working? In Jeremiah 2, verse 2, God remembered Israel with a view toward her restoration. In Jeremiah 31, verse 20, God remembered Ephraim with a view towards extending mercy to him. In Luke 1, 54 and 55, God remembered Israel with a view towards sending the Messiah to Israel. Furthermore, the sense was that God was that of God remembering a covenant, although in this case the covenant itself had not yet been made. He said earlier in chapter 6 that he would establish his covenant with Noah. Furthermore, in chapter 7, verse 4 of Genesis, God remembered that the rain would only last 40 days. All these usages fit the word remember. So don't import the English word remember here. That's not what it's dealing with. God is not having a, a senior moment. He is not forgetting something. He knows where his car keys are at all times. Even if your husband or wife doesn't, God knows where they are. That's why when you forget what your car keys are, the best, smartest thing to do is just to pray about it. Lord, where are those car keys again? And he won't say take a drive over to the restaurant you were at because you don't have your car keys. (laughs) See, these are the weird things I I think about. Um, But back to the text, what it's saying is a movement towards somebody to exercise grace. And so what's happening here with Rachel is God remembered Rachel. God remembered that she was barren. God remembered that she had no biological children of her own, only 
legal children through Bilhah. God remembered her anguish. He remembered the desire of her heart. And he made a movement towards her in grace. All of that to say that whatever you're struggling with right now, I don't know what the issue is. Could be any number of things. Physical, relational, economic, family. Don't think for a moment that God has somehow forgotten your circumstances. He knows your circumstances, and I believe in his providence and his timing. He will make an extension towards you by way of grace. So don't become faint-hearted in prayer thinking that somehow the Lord has forgotten you. In fact, when you look at the second part of verse 22, it says, God gave heed to her and opened her womb. God listens to prayer. Did you know that? The book of James chapter 5 and verses 16 and 17 says, The effective prayer of a righteous man or woman, of course, can availeth much. Well, do we have any examples of that? Yes, James says. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, Elijah put his shoes on one foot at a time just like you do. He was just an ordinary person. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. I guess he didn't pray for today, but that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. That's the power of prayer. One of the greatest weapons that you have as a Christian is prayer. Our problem is we don't get an immediate answer and we think God has forgotten. But he hasn't forgotten. What the Bible says in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11 is to, when you study this in Greek, ask and keep asking. Present tense. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. And the door will be open to you. Our problem is we, we knock or we ask or we seek once or twice and we just quit. God's not aware of our circumstances, we, we falsely think. In Luke 18, verse 1, Jesus told a whole parable about this, which we won't go into, but here's how he prefaces the parable. Luke 18, verse 1, he says he was telling them a parable to show them at all times they, that's the disciples, ought to pray and not lose heart. I like how other English translations translate this. Jesus is saying, men ought to pray and not faint. Maybe you're here today fainting because of circumstances. Jesus knows those circumstances. And he says, keep keep praying. It's obvious here that Rachel was despondent over her barrenness and she kept praying and What does verse 22 say? God gave heed to her and opened her womb. And not only is she going to get a child here, she's going to get a really important child. A man named Joseph, who God is going to use to take the nation of Israel out of diabolical Canaan into Goshen to be incubated 
for 400 years. She's not just getting a kid. She's getting a really important kid. All of these children are important. I mean, they have massive destinies to fulfill in God. But Rachel, because of her persistence in prayer, is not just getting a child here. She's getting a very special child. And so now we have the birth of Rachel's first natural son. The other children, as important as they are, were her legal children, but not her children from her own womb. Look, if you will, at verse 23. So she conceived and bore a son. Now notice this, that this conception did not come from the mandrakes. See that? She wanted the mandrakes because she thought the mandrakes were the solution to her problem. But the mandrakes, or lack thereof, or the acquisition of, was not her problem, was not her solution. Her solution was in who? Was in God. It was the Lord who had providentially, and why he did this, I don't know if we're given the exact answer, not allowed her to bore children right out of the gate. Her sister had six and a daughter. And here I am, I'm the one that's loved. I don't have any. The mandrakes will fix my problem. No, God will. And I would just encourage you today with whatever issue it is you're wrestling with. Don't look to some kind of human um, solution. Some sort of manipulation, some sort of scheming that that you watch on a soap opera. People are manipulating and scheming all of the time about all kinds of things. Look to God. God is your answer. I like... uh, Proverbs 21, verse 31. By the way, just because I like it, that means nothing. It's in the Bible. Proverbs 21, verse 31 says, The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. It's not the horse that's going to deliver you. God can use the horse, but the victory belongs to the Lord. It's not the mandrakes that are going to solve your problem. It's the providential sovereignty of God moving his hand in history because now he is moving in grace towards Rachel, never, ever, ever having forgotten Rachel's cry of her heart. And this child is born and she gives him a name. And you see that there in the second half of verse 23. So she conceived and bore a son. You look at the second half of verse 23 and it says with the name and God has taken away my reproach. The reproach of barrenness. I'm not here to say that anyone that's struggling with with this is somehow under reproach, but in this culture, it was humiliating. It was absolutely humiliating for a woman not being able to conceive, particularly when your sister, who, by the way, you're sharing a husband with, (laughs) wow, has six kids. You want to talk about family tension? We got it brewing right here in the Word of God. 
And yet God is using family tension to advance his sovereign purposes. I mean, that should, that should cause your heart to rejoice. God can take your imperfect circumstances, whatever they are, and use them to advance his purposes. That's what the whole book of Genesis is about. This is not light stuff that's happening here. A nation is being developed. The foundation for the nation is being orchestrated by the sovereign hand of God in the midst of imperfect people with imperfect choices. Our solution isn't people, it's God. Let's look to the Lord. God has taken away my, the reproach of my embar- uh, barrenness. Now the word taken away, taken away my reproach is the word asaf in Hebrew, where we get the word what? Joseph. Kind of sounds the same. Asaf taken away. Joseph. This is where Joseph's name came from. There's another slight nuance to it. Verse 24. So she named him. Could you imagine how happy she was to be naming children from her own womb and not the womb of somebody else? She named the children that came from Billa. Now she's naming her own baby that came from her own body. She named him Joseph saying... May the Lord give me another son. So Joseph comes from Yosef, which combines Asaf taken away with addition. You take the Hebrew word add, add another son, combine it with the word taken away, as in taken away a reproach. And that's where this name Joseph comes from. Because she prays, I want another one, Lord. It's it's expressing her hope. You give me one, how about two? What's interesting is Rachel's desire for a second is going to be added, not here, but in Genesis 35. And she actually dies giving birth to the second, Benjamin. Genesis 35, 18 and 19, it says it came about as her soul was departing, for she died. That, by the way, is what happens when you die. There's a separation between the material and the immaterial. The body and the soul or the suke, which is designed to live forever. The two separate. If you're a Christian, your soul goes right into the presence of who? The Lord. Absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. Boy, since COVID, we're really afraid of everything, aren't we? We're afraid of death. America is afraid of death. We have a culture of health and beauty. Don't talk about getting old. Don't talk about death. I'm afraid of that. Paul says, are you kidding me? Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In fact, he says for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. You don't have to be afraid as a, as a Christian of, of death. In fact, if you as a Christian are afraid to die, you're living beneath your privileges. You're living beneath your promises. Death is a reality. I mean, if we are not the rapture generation, I hope and pray we are, can't promise it, every person in here will die. And yet, there's a biblical understanding to death. 
as we're related by way of faith to Jesus. We don't look at death the way the world does. COVID is terrible. You know, you could die. That's what they kept saying. You could die. Well, I could go this afternoon to the steakhouse and I could choke on a piece of steak and I could die. I mean, I could drive home without my seatbelt on or even with my seatbelt on and get hit by a car. I could die. I better stay in my house. I better not eat steak. You can see I'm not doing well in that area. Because you could die. Everybody's afraid to die. Um, What does the Bible say? You can die doing anything. We have to live for Jesus. We have to live lives where we're not afraid of everything. This is how God is calling his church to live in these last days. It came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrathoth, that is Bethlehem. Interesting. Well, when are you going to comment on that verse, Pastor? Oh, in about five months when we get to Genesis 35. <laughs> it's coming. Just be patient. Or pray for the rapture, one of the two. So she says, You've, this birth has taken away my reproach and I want another son. She's going to get that in Genesis 35. You take those two verbs and you put them together or those two Hebrew ideas and you put them together and you get the name Joseph. Joseph is the fulfillment. Benjamin would be also a fulfillment of a hope that would cost her her life. And so Joseph now is born and he is big. He is a big deal because God, through the patriarchs, is creating. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, God used them to create, to bring forth the nation of Israel. Not Joseph. Joseph is not one of the patriarchs. In fact, when God identifies himself to Moses and elsewhere, he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't say, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Because Joseph was not one of the patriarchs. Because he had a different purpose. His purpose was not creating, but it was sustaining. God used Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to create the nation of Israel. And then he used the birth of Joseph to get Israel out of Canaan or else they would have dissolved morally. As Genesis 34 and Genesis 38 demonstrate. God creates and then he sustains. He creates through the patriarchs and he sustains through Joseph. Just like your salvation. God created Your salvation through the new birth, being born again. And aren't you glad God is not just in the creating business? He's in the sustaining business. Philippians 1 verse 6 describes how we are now sustained as newborn children of God. Paul writes, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will what? Perfect it. Until God gets tired of working, doesn't say that, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You are a patriarch and you're a Joseph all at the same time. 
You are supernaturally brought into existence by the Spirit of God through the new birth by exercising faith alone in Christ alone. And then God just doesn't drop you. He keeps sustaining you until the very day that you arrive in his presence. And I just say praise the Lord. And I I doubt Rachel or even Joseph, what, what could he know about this as an infant? understood that he was born for a purpose. This whole thing looks accidental, but it's not. This man has a purpose. This man has a calling. The calling is just as real as the calling that was placed on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's just not a creation calling. It's a sustaining calling. And I'm here to tell you, folks... (laughs) And I've had a difficult time sometimes even in my own life accepting this. But if you're in Christ, there is an absolute calling on your life to do something. I don't really know what it is for everybody. I think I'm just barely growing into the calling that God has for me. But I know this much, whether I understand it or not, it's there. Because the last time I checked, Ephesians 2 verse 10 is in my Bible. Is Ephesians 2 verse 10 in your Bible? Well, yeah, verse 10, but I don't really like that verse. I like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That's where we're comfortable in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? Why are we comfortable in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? Because we're living post-Reformation. And we've been spending so much time, rightfully so, by the way, Defending the doctrine of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone without works. And we ought to fight that one and defend it. We've been fighting that for the last five centuries post-Protestant Reformation. We've been so busy fighting that battle that we've forgotten that verse 10 comes after verses 8 and 9. We all know verses 8 and 9. For by grace, you could probably say them by heart. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. That is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one will boast. Amen. Close the Bible. But no, there's a verse 10. What does verse 10 say? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, creation. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. I'm not saved by good works, but I'm certainly saved unto good works. Joseph was brought into the world for a work that he had to grow into. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Look at this. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Before Joseph was even born, God said, here's a good work you're going to do, Joseph. It's not going to be a lot of fun, at least at the beginning. But you're the guy. That's going to bring Israel out of Canaan into Egypt. You're the guy. You're not in the, I'm not going to use you to create Israel. I'm going to use you to preserve Israel. And so Joseph is going through his own life 
as all of these things are happening to him, gradually figuring out why he exists. And that's your life. That's my life. We're born for a purpose, born for a reason, born at a particular time in history. Think of all of the eras in history in which you could be born, but God allowed you to be born in this generation. Why would God do that? Because he has a purpose for you of some sort in this generation. And so I think it's time, folks, we get on our faces before God and ask the most fundamental question a human being could ask. I've asked God a lot lately this. It's part of my prayer life. Lord, you've given me so much. Why am I here? I mean, you you look back at my life and you see God working different ways, blessings he's given me. At some point you have to ask yourself, why, why, why does all this stuff come my direction? You should be asking that about your own life because you're blessed unto God as well. Why are I, why am I here? Why do I exist? By the way, the public school classroom will give you no answer to this. They'll tell you you're a biological accident. You're only going to get it from the Lord. And I would just exhort you in your prayer time this week to start that and ask yourself, God, why am I here? Joseph was born to get Israel out of Canaan into the Nile Delta area to incubate Israel for 400 years. Well, who's going to bring Israel out of Egypt? That's not your purpose, Joseph. That's someone else's purpose. You don't know his name, but his name's Moses. And Moses says to the Lord, well, Lord, who is going to uh, take us into the Canaan conquest? That's not your purpose, Moses. That's someone else's purpose. That's Joshua's purpose. And Joshua says, boy, it's really bad here. Um, who's going to minister to God's people during the 70-year captivity? That's not your purpose, Joshua. That's Daniel's purpose. And then Daniel says, well, Lord, who's going to die on the cross for the sins of the world? That's not your purpose, Daniel. That's Jesus' purpose. And then Jesus says to the Lord, well, Lord, who's going to go on the three missionary journeys and take Christianity to the unknown parts of the world. That's not your purpose, Jesus. That's Paul's purpose. See how it works? Everybody has a purpose in God. Your purpose is different than mine. My purpose is different than yours. Your person is different than the person that's sitting next to you. The person sitting next to you has a different purpose than you. It's kind of exciting when you think about it. I think I'm going to press into God. And rather than keep up with the Joneses, asking, what do you want to do with me, Lord? And that's the birth of Joseph. So here's what the whole picture looks like. We're really getting ready to wrap up, I promise. Through Leah is going to come Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. Through Zilpah is going to come Gad and Asher. Through Rachel is going to come Joseph and Benjamin, Benjamin being born later. And through Bilhah is going to come Dan and Naphtali. 
Reuben sight, Simeon hearing, Levi attached, Judah praise, Issachar hire, Zebulun dwelling, Gad fortune, Asher happiness, Joseph my reproach has been removed, Benjamin will study down the road, Dan judge, Naphtali wrestle, and there you have it, the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the start that the nation received. We're also grateful for people that may be listening online that may not know you personally, that want to understand why they are here and what their purpose is. We just invite anybody within the sound of my voice as the Spirit convicts them to place their personal faith in Jesus so that they can be related to you by way of faith. And as they enter into that relationship, might discover the purpose for which they were, which they were born. I pray that many, many people within the sound of my voice would be placing their faith in Jesus as I speak. Those that have confusion on it, I do pray, Lord, that you would make them aware through the sound of my voice that I'm available after the service to talk. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said.